The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. So it's time for the Culture Club and I'm delighted that we're joined today by Richard Chambers who will be well known to viewers of Virgin Media News who has been a regular particular in our COVID coverage and of course has also written the best-selling book A State of Emergency and if you're looking to buy a Christmas present for the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly it might be perfect for him because Richard apparently he hasn't read it. I I, I do wonder. He definitely knew a little bit too much about it for someone who hasn't read any of the details. Maybe he has some people speed reading parts of it to him. I'd say so. Some mandarins in the Department of Health (laughs) have been pilfering through it I'd say. I'd imagine it's going to be a book a lot of people are going to get for Christmas but for those who may be wrongly put off by the idea, oh, we don't want another thing about COVID, mm. there's a lot more to it than that. And there's an awful lot of detail about almost like the palace intrigues as well, aren't there? It's very interesting in light of what we've been hearing from the UK even over the last couple of days. There's a lot of those similar situations with with SPADs or, par- or political advisors to ministers and the conflict behind the scenes. So... Like, it, it isn't a very academic or sort of weighty book. This this was meant to be accessible because everybody understands COVID fatigue. I have COVID fatigue. You definitely have oh, COVID yeah. fatigue too. So I was about, you know, this year that has changed all of our lives. If it's changed all of our lives, well, then it should be accessible to everyone to read. So I wanted to make it readable. I did want people to have an understanding for the humans behind the scenes. So all of the individual members of Neffet, the people behind the, the decisions at Cabinet, trying to really get to what made them tick. What were their relationships behind the scenes? And some people have sort of asked as well, is it too soon to write a book like this? But that's why I felt it was important to do now. Because people's memories are fresh. They're in the same relationships. They're in the same positions that they're in, in the middle of all these decisions. So, okay, listen, let's move on to your culture club choices. And we'll get to books in a while. We'll see if there's anything there that might knock you off the number one spot for Christmas. We always start by asking the first bit of music that people can remember buying. You're maybe too young to ask about singles, are you? No, we had singles. We did. We had that. It was in, it was 2002, so the summertime of humanity. Ireland was in a World Cup and um, I was listening to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, a so precocious I, little young fella, so were you? I was 12 years old, Matt, you know. So it was, it was in that time where you move out of like the kid kid music to that transitional phase where some of the music that you'll listen to for the rest of your life, you pick up yeah. some of that. Luckily enough, I still don't listen to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So, I mean, there's there's been some maturation there but I remember at that time it was all sort of a little bit it was it was guitar stuff so it was Red Hot Chili Peppers Foo Fighters Muse as well Muse's um, album um, I think it was Absolution I think it was it's just really sort of it was big stuff and I was just blown away by it at the time the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I think, was the biggest band in Russia, North County, Dublin at the time. So I, uh, it was, I remember my, my biggest experience, my biggest memory of that was that I bought the single and then I bought the album, by the way. And um, I remember forever my mom looking through, she picked up the album one day because obviously I hadn't brought home any albums before. And she looked through the album notes and it was had all the lyrics in it. And she called me up for a big conversation about very, very bad lyrics in there. A lot of bad language, a lot of like, you know, violent lyrics. She didn't pick me up on the bad taste element, which is probably something I'd be more ashamed of now. But um, yeah, it was just, it just, I just thought it was an amazing song. And I listened to it. It's one of those things because we, we sort of, you get it more now with the Spotify generation where you play songs to death. But this definitely was played to death by me on, on a Discman or, or a Walkman or whatever it was. Title track from the album, by the way. Standing in line to see the show tonight 
trying to diss it there a minute ago but you were bopping your head away to it you know what's going to happen now somebody's going to get you tickets for them in concert oh in God, next summer the, probably, the chorus know? wasn't bad though it's all the Anthony Kiedis bit in the middle where he's going like con job he's as bad a singer really as he was an actor do you remember Point Break he was in that he was an extra in Point Break it's one of the surf the surf Nazis is what they, what they were <laughs> We're on flashbacks here, Matt. (laughs) That's what we try to do in the Culture Club. Listen, go to Favourite Artist. You gave us a list. So give us a few people before you go for the one that you plumped for. Yeah, I had a number of different artists who have sort of been favourites of mine over the years. Bruce Springsteen, who I'm sure loads of your Culture Club inductees have gone for before. Frank Ocean as well, I think, is just an incredible, just one of the great vocal artists. And just a great songwriter too. So I just think the way how he's matured. He started off with that... um, that, that sort of very controversial rap group, um, Odd Future. But then he just sort of focused on his own thing. Very great R&B singer. Um, as well as that, the Fugees as well, back from the 90s. Uh, Lauren Hill, Wyclef Jean, just amazing. Amazing. Just great songs. You still hear them on the radio. You still hear like even, you know, the miseducation of Lauren Hill to this day. So, I mean, just brilliant artists which have had a huge influence on me. And I didn't want to go all in on Kanye West who is my favourite artist of all time but I can't can't disown him I can't disown him it's one of those things where you get into that sort of the separation between the artist and um, and the art because he's he's let me down so much in recent years both musically and away from music Um, but I just I always find myself listening to his old album so if you go from late registration to college dropout um, all the way through graduation my favourite album of his um, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy what I like about Kanye West Matt and for people who mightn't be into him, is that there is a huge change between his music in all of his albums and the influence that he's had. So if you look back to his earlier albums, they were full of loads of soul sal- samples. So there'd been lots of Marvin Gaye, a lot of the Temptations and all of that sort of stuff coming through. That changed how rap music was in the mid-2000s. Then he moved on to Graduation and, and 808s and Heartbreaks. He started using the auto-tune thing with his, with his, with his vocal um, element. That just influenced people like Drake, um, all of hip hop and Travis Scott, all these people who are huge now. They all hang on to these albums. For an artist to sort of inspire different generations and different classes of artists is really impressive. So, like, I mean, he's described himself as I am a god before, but in a musical sense, it's kind of hard to argue in some ways. I mean, he's definitely a fallen god in recent years. The last couple of albums have been far from my, my, my sort of thing. He's gone very gospel, I think. With, with two of his most recent ones. His last one, was the most recent one, which is out this year, um, Donda, which is a tribute to his late mother. Um, some brilliant stuff in that. There's some flashes of the old Kanye West in there, but for the most part, it's kind of a, it's a, it's kind of almost a lost love. You go back and revisit these old albums and, and all the impact that they had on you then. 
well, the track that we have, and we have to give a language warning on this, <laughs> is from the 2010 album that you said is your favourite, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. This is Power. Century, doing something mean to it, do it better than anybody you ever seen. Do it, screams from the haters, got a nice ring to it. I guess every superhero need his theme music. No one man should have all that power. The clock's ticking, I just count the hours. Stop tripping, I'm tripping off the power. Broken, the schools closed, the prisons open. We ain't got nothing to lose, motherfucker. We rolling, huh? Motherfucker, we rolling with some light skinned girls and some Kelly Rollins. In this white man world, we the ones chosen. So good night, cool world. I see you in the morning, huh? I see you in the morning. This is way too much. I need a moment. No one man. Can you rest there? Some classic Kanye and. Bring us Richard Chambers for your best gig, please. Yeah, because it's, it's it's the same thing again. I try to sort of separate and try and spread things out, but there's no gig which will ever top uh, Kanye West and Jay-Z. They did the Watch the Throne tour in the point, or, or it was the O2 Arena, as it was called at the time, back in 2012. And I think anyone who was there, and I've actually Googled this in preparation. I looked back at the old reviews just to try and refresh my memory. But like I have such a clear visual picture of arriving at the point just the huge buzz of anticipation. And it was like, I think it was at 7.45 was meant to be the start of the concert. Didn't get going until 8.30. So you had a whole, we were obviously in the standing section because you wouldn't be sitting and clapping along to, to Jay-Z and Kanye West. I was just there and we just there, there was a ripple of electricity through the place. And then Jay-Z and Kanye West appeared. They played Ham off their The Watch the Throne, which is their joint album. And it was just sensory overload. They had these two giant columns which they appeared on in the middle of the floor and they had these giant Ultra HD screens with all this modern art and Virgil Abloh stuff like flashed up on screen. It was just mental. I'd never seen anything like it. I remember, I, don't take my word on it though, Zomat. I, I think Nyler Nine said it was hard to imagine any gig being better than this. Jim Carroll of the Irish Times, the same. I think anybody who was there fondly remembers it. It lived up to the expectations. Because you know the way sometimes you go expecting something and it yeah. just doesn't live up to it, but this more than did it for you. Exactly, yeah. And I've had so many of those concerts which have sort of let me down over the years. I went to a Bob Dylan once and it was just really just, it's just sad. Just sad it was, you know. But I think that's that's kind of the the luster of a Bob Dylan gig is you can get him on a good day and he's amazing and sometimes it's not. It's just the look of the draw. But it was just incredible. Such an amazing crowd. I think it was, it almost, for me it's a landmark moment as well. It was kind of the moment for me that Kanye West, I sort of to drift away from him because at that point, I think I remember him standing on one of those giant columns and he was going on a rant as was his thing at the time and still is. Uh, and he goes on about how he was just, I think he just started dating Kim Kardashian at the time. I was just about to ask you, would it have been about that time? It was, yeah. yeah. And he was going on about how I bought Kim Kardashian, who I really love, a new Lamborghini. And we were all expected to go, woohoo. And I was just, and from there on out, it's just, there's just been a drop off and it's just been a continued slide. Um, his last album individually off the back of that was um, The Life of Pablo, which is amazing. But I just look at it and that's that's the transition moment where it all just started to just just start to slide off the off the skid. We don't have it from the O2 that night, but from the tour, the Watch the Throne tour of the UK, we have no church in the wild.
Okay, Jay-Z and Kanye West, no church in the wild. Now, having listened to Kanye and heard your choices, I think people, Richard James, are going to be really surprised by your nomination of favourite album. Yeah, they should be. It's a woman's heart. A woman's heart. The tape that exists in every glove box in this country, every kitchen stereo um, in Ireland has definitely seen a copy of A Woman's Heart, the compilation album really sort of spearheaded by Eleanor McAvoy. And it definitely is. It's okay. What does it do for you? It reminds me of childhood. It does bring me back, and I think those are some of my my favorite musical memories are to do with family and to do with music we heard growing up. Um, myself, my brother, and my mum were living in in Lahinch in West Clare. Um, we were going on long trips to Dublin to see my grandparents or Belfast, where I was originally born, and this tape was constantly on it. So a woman's heart, and it has just the greatest collection of singers. Um, between Eleanor McAvoy and Mary Black who was really at the peak of her powers there in the early 90s uh, people like uh, obviously Moore O'Connell he was huge in Claire at the time and then music- musically Sharon Shannon you have two amazing Sharon Shannon songs in there in, in Cordinio and Blackbird earworms to this day but it just it has been such a lingering album all the way through to such an extent that it's it got such an airing and early lockdown in our house while myself and three other journalists were, were living there um, and it just became sort of our end of night. We're just depressed on a Friday evening. Let's <laughs> let's hit the Mary Black. Let's hit it one more time. Um, it actually, yeah, it's just it just it, it is just a beautiful album. It reminds me of my mom, and um, it just does things to me internally. Just great sing along songs as well, and um, I just think yeah, it could be probably picked out as a guilty pleasure. I, I don't really like that that expression, but it's just an you amazing used it. album. You didn't put I, it exactly. to you. <laughs> <laughs> the track that we've taken from it is Caledonia by Dolores Keane. I don't know if you can see the changes that Make me think about where I come from That's the reason why I seem so far away Caledonia by Dolores Keane from A Woman's Heart, which is the favourite album of Richard Chambers, our guest on the Culture Club today. So we've gone through all of the music. So let's move on to movies. And uh, what have you gone for here? Yeah, for favourite movie, I have gone for um, another 90s pick. It is Goodwill Hunting. Um, the a really sort of coming of age tale uh, starring uh, and written by uh, Matt Damon and uh, Ben Affleck and, of course, Robin Williams in, in one of his more dramatic roles, an incredible performance from him. And it's just, it's a real sort of, I suppose it is a landmark sort of film in terms of what it does for young men, I suppose. It talks about things young men don't often talk about. It is really a film about therapy in many ways, about dreams, fears, I suppose, loss, weaknesses, heartbreak. 
a lot in it. Um, it's just an incredible film, um, which I've probably watched, I would say, in the region, I'd say 15 times, 15 to 20 times. And it's just, it doesn't get tiring. I don't know why you're laughing, man. I'm not laughing. It's an absolute, just... it's an absolute gem of a film. Um, it put those two lads, Ben Affleck and, and uh, Matt Damon, really on the mat, on the map, I should say. Um, but it's just an incredible film. So quotable as well. Like, there is elements of comedy in there alongside the tragedy. I think, I th- I'll always remember... When Robin Williams died, there was a story, of course, about how he improvised so often. And there's an, an infamous scene in this where he talks about, he, he plays Sean, who's um, uh, Will's uh, therapist. And he talks about his wife. And this is his way of connecting with Will is obviously through, well, I had this great love in my life who, was, who, who left me and my wife. And he used to talk about how she farted in her sleep. And he just completely improvised this thing. And you can see him in the film just with tears streaming down his face and same with Matt Damon as well. And it's just like, this is just incredible talent. Just all over it. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck as well. Just sensational performances from from one so young as well. We have a clip in which Will, played by Matt Damon, is asked in an interview if he wants to join the National Security Agency. Say I'm working at the NSA and somebody puts a code on my desk, something no one else can break. Maybe I take a shot at it and maybe I break it. And I'm real happy with myself because I did my job well. But maybe that code was the location of some rebel army in North Africa or the Middle East. And once they have that location, they bomb the village where the rebels are hiding. 1,500 people that I never met, never had no problem with, get killed. Now the politicians are saying, oh, send in the Marines to secure the area because they don't give a shit. It won't be their kid over there getting shot just like it wasn't them when their number got called because they were all pulling a tour in the National Guard. It'll be some kid from Southie over there taking shrapnel in the ass. He comes back to find that the plant he used to work at got exported to the country he just got back from and the guy who put the shrapnel in his ass got his old job because he'll work for 15 cents a day and no bathroom breaks. Meanwhile, he realizes the only reason he was over there in the first place was so that we could install a government that would sell us oil at a good price. And of course, the oil companies use a little skirmish over there to scare up domestic oil prices. A cute little ancillary benefit for them, but it ain't helping my buddy at two fifty a gallon. They're taking their sweet time bringing the oil back, of course. Maybe they even took the liberty of hiring an alcoholic skipper who likes to drink martinis and play slalom with the icebergs. It ain't too long till he hits one, spills the oil, and kills all the sea life in the North Atlantic. So now my buddy's out of work, he can't afford to drive, so he's walking to the job interviews, which sucks because the shrapnel in his ass has given him chronic hemorrhoids. And meanwhile, he's starving because every time he tries to get a bite to eat, the only blue plate special they're serving is North Atlantic Scrod with Quaker State. So what did I think? I'm holding out for something better. Quite the speech. If you hadn't <laughs> gone for Goodwill Hunting, I see you have a list of 80s and 90s movies that were close runners up. Yeah, and do you know what, actually, over lockdown as well, myself and um, one of my housemates, Dave Hanratty, who's um, familiar to your listeners as well, um, do, does a lot of music stuff with you yeah. guys. We, we'd watched a load of these, just favourites. So, like, there was Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which would be another one of my big favourites of all time. A uh, Few Good Men, which I just find probably the most watchable film of all time. It's one of those ones where you can just walk in and it's on, like, say, it's on it's on one of the channels and you flick it on you're like, oh, this bit here. Here's Jack Nicholson who's only in it for a handful of scenes. He's going to chew the scenery up. He's going to make absolute mincemeat out of everybody. Um, and Tom Cruise is so good in that as well. Like, everybody remembers the courtroom scene, scene at the end. But it's just full of it. It's just brilliant. Aaron Sorkin as well, I suppose, as the screenwriter there. It's it's really early introduction to some of his work. Uh, White Men Can't Jump as well. A great comedy. Amazing performances from Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes. Uh, and I'm a big basketball fan. It is a great introduction to a lot of basketball culture. It's just hilarious as well. It's just great. It's just easy watches all the way through. Okay, favourite play? 
Favourite play, um, I'm a little bit biased, um, Asking for It, uh, which was adapted by Landmark Productions of Louise O'Neill's um, best-selling book, Asking for It. Of course, Louise O'Neill uh, is my partner, but it is the play I've seen more than any other play that has ever been written, um, even any Leaving Cert plays. I've seen it actually more than Louise has seen it because it was. It did obviously, it launched in Cork in The Everyman and then it went, I think, it went around Dublin as well and I used to just bring friends along to it. It's like, lads, we'll go and see Louise's play. Well, that goes beyond loyalty to Louise. I know, right? Yeah. So, what is it about it that makes it so viewable for you? Well, for people who, even if people haven't read the book, it is an extraordinary tale. Obviously, it talks about um, a, a, an awful um, rape of a young girl in a, a West Cork town, a fictional West Cork town, um, and basically how her life is changed by that. How all of her peers and her classmates react to that. It has an incredible cast. Uh, Landmark Productions are just brilliant when, when they pull anything together, any of the End of Wall stuff, for example. But if you talk about the young Irish cast who are there, uh, Lauren Coe, Kwaku Fortune, Venetia Bow, uh, Paul Meskel, of course, actually even before uh, Normal People, I can say that I saw Paul Meskel wearing GA shorts sitting on a bench uh, in Asking For It um, uh, way before... <laughs> That's where the idea came the from. The Gucci shorts came into it. <laughs> O'Neill's shorts, isn't it? Yeah, it was Gucci. <laughs> then he, Gucci then modelled them on the GA, the classic <laughs> O'Neill's shorts. <laughs> But it was brilliant. I just, I will never forget though, um, the the night of the premiere in The Everyman in Cork and it came to the interval and there was just this shocked silence that came on um, and just the sound then of tears. And I know people who were there and they were queuing for the bathroom, both the women's bathroom and, and the men's bathroom and there were just people in there crying. And this really brought a lot of people back to shocking and awful moments in their own life. It probably made people reflect on situations that their friends or their peers may have gone through as well. And it had that impact every single time I went to see it. I saw it in Birmingham as well. It was done over there as well. And it had that same impact, that shock that, you know, that that it was just very, that's very powerful art to make people sort of reflect on their own choices in life or the situations that they've been uh, victim to. And just a cracking, a cracking cast who really brought this. If you speak to any of the actors now, and I'm still in touch with some of them, like they talk back about that time when they were all together. And it was just they, this, this, this real raw, young energy crackling off them. It's so true to life. And I think that's why it's so effective, that these are all young people. You get that sort of big house party feel to them when they're in the room together, that GAA club almost atmosphere as well. And it is just a very, very special piece of art. That's Asking For It by Louise O'Neill. OK, favourite book? Yeah, so obviously as a journalist, I just devour a lot of non-fiction stuff. Um, the works of, of Lawrence Wright, who's an American journalist, brilliant, um, Looming Tower, which is about 9-11. He did his own pandemic book um, called The Plague Year, looking at the Trump administration. Um, but then sort of non-fiction or fiction that I sort of have loved over the years. Marion Keyes' work is something I've come around to quite um, over the last number of years. An amazing person who just gets the Irish psyche, I think, so well. Um, but the book that I've picked for my favourite book is Underground Wa- Railroad, um, by Colson Whitehead. Um, just an extraordinary piece. Where I don't know if you've read it yourself, Matt. I haven't. It's actually at my bedside. I'm like you. I tend to read so much non-fiction. Yeah. I have very little time to read fiction. And this is one that I've meant to and probably mean to read before I watch the adaptation, which I think is on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime, Prime I think. I've seen a couple of episodes of that and I didn't think it would ever be adaptable. So basically, it's it's, it's an alternative um history fiction around um, slavery in the United States. Uh, It focuses on Cora and Caesar who are two enslaved people who run off the plantation in Georgia and you know you've heard the historical idea of the Underground Railroad is there's abolitionists and there's people who help uh, runaway 
uh, enslaved people to get to the north, away from the, the plantations in the south, to get to the north and then on to Canada to freedom, effectively. It transposes that idea onto an actual underground railroad with trains and all that sort of stuff, uh, which links to different states and all the way through to the north. And it's brilliant because there's so much elements of fantasy, of magic. It's magical realism, really. But there's a real brutality to it as well that, that Whitehead, I think, in his other books as well, really focuses in on. We have an extract from the audiobook. In this excerpt, after travelling the Underground Railroad to Freedom, Cora has been giving fake papers and now lives as Bessie in a settlement in South Carolina. Margaret had a heavy hand with the salt, although her meat and poultry were always exquisitely tender. Bessie mopped up the fat with a crust of bread as she listened to the talk of evening plans. Most of the girls stayed in the night before the social, but some of the younger ones were going out to the colored saloon that had recently opened. Although it wasn't supposed to, the saloon accepted scrip. Another reason to avoid the place, Bessie thought. She brought her dishes to the kitchen and headed back upstairs. Bessie? Good evening, Miss Lucy, Bessie said. It was rare Miss Lucy stayed this late on a Friday. Most proctors disappeared at six o'clock. To hear the girls from the other dormitories tell it, Miss Lucy's diligence put her colleagues to shame. To be sure, Bessie had benefited from her advice many times. She admired the way her clothes were always so crisp and fit just so. Miss Lucy wore her hair in a bun, and the thin metal of her eyeglasses lent her a severe aspect but her quick smile told the story of the woman beneath. Okay, that is from Colson Whitehead's book, The Underground Railroad. Um, we're very short on time, so television. You said you liked basketball, so I presume you liked that Michael Jordan documentary. Last Dance is great. He's just a, 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 he's a complete sociopath, I would say, <laughs> in how his attitude so? towards winning. It is, yeah. And it's interesting, you see like people, his old teammates now saying, I don't remember it like this. This is clearly just this absolute, just megalomaniac figure who is devoted just to winning and just to winning alone um, is it really shone through in that documentary as well That's The Sopranos I'm sure has been tipped so many times on this as it well has. Um, as has Succession which you also have on your list yeah I mean we're all the same aren't we like I mean <laughs> but I'm interested in the one you've gone for we, we have a clip from Ted Lasso because I found myself losing interest in Ted Lasso as the second mm. series progressed it's interesting that because the, the first season everybody loved it because it was an escape from reality. Yeah. It was so sweet and lovely and optimistic. The second season, I think it took the decision, we can't keep doing that. It's going to get schmaltzy. So it decided to add an element of darkness and betrayal. I thought it was very brave what they did. I do understand there were some episodes there I always lost interest. There was a Christmas episode thrown in there in the middle. I was like, bloody hell, yeah. what, what are we doing here? But no, it's brilliant. There's great, great ensemble cast in there. Um, so and there was a great warmth to it, I think particularly which we needed perhaps during the whole year. Podcast, give us a podcast, please. Podcast Floodlines. Um, it's made by the Atlantic Magazine, in the United States. It's the story of Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath of it. The the audio production on it is amazing. I always advise people if they're going to listen to it, get a good an L set of headphones. This isn't something you you listen to in the background. It's just human story after human story of people whose lives were completely flipped upside down by Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Well, actually, let's just hear a clip from it. I've spent a lot of time recently thinking about a man I don't know much about. I don't know what he looked like. I don't know how old he was. I don't know where he was born or where he died. What I do know is his name, Richard. 
he was enslaved, and he was on Last Island in 1856. Last Island, Ile Dernière. Back then, they spoke French in southern Louisiana, and that island was about as far south as it got. Last Island was a resort, a place where everybody who was anybody went for the cool, salt breeze. The wealthy of America's slaveocracy would go there in the summer to have balls, parade down the promenade, relax. But behind their leisure was a hand of slave power that ran everything. I know a little bit more about the man who owned Richard. Thomas Mill was a Frenchman. He ran a sugar plantation out in the bayou. Mill took his family to their mansion on Last Island that summer. On August 9th, a Saturday night, they danced in a grand ball in the local hotel. But on Sunday, they looked out into the waves and felt the bracing winds approach. A storm was coming. Okay, that certainly catches the ear. Is that reflective of what it's all like? It is, yeah. It stitches history, music, culture, even looking forward and, and the impact on race and how, you know, the American government led by George Bush was just completely disinterested, really, in what was happening in New Orleans at the time. It is, it's a phenomenal listen. I really have to recommend it. That's Floodlines by The Atlantic, which is Richard Chambers' favourite podcast. And unfortunately, we've used up all our time. Just remember, if you want to buy that present for Stephen Donnelly, or if it's not for Stephen Donnelly, <laughs> if you want it for yourself or for a loved one, A State of Emergency is the book by Richard Chambers, which gives such an insight into the decision-making process and the human impacts of COVID-19. Richard, thank you very much for joining us here on The Last Word of Today FM. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.